Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome once again to The Tennis Podcast and our second of two special Tennis Relived US Open Relived episodes. The first of them focused on Althea Gibson, and I hope you listened to and enjoyed and appreciated that, and we hope you feel exactly the same about this episode, about a man just as important and significant to the tennis and sporting world, Arthur Ashe, a man whose legacy lives on in the tennis and sporting world and a man who both literally and figuratively looms over the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre. Of course, the the stadium there, the biggest tennis stadium in the world is, is named after him, the Arthur Ashe Stadium. And there's also the statue of him there bearing one of his many, many famous and poignant quotes from what we get we can make a living from what we give however we make a life um googling great arthur ash quotes by the way (laughs) is quite an experience (laughs) it's definitely not a one pager it's a sort of seven pager uh at minimum because yeah he was he was a man with uh an incredible turn of phrase and incredible skill with a tennis racket and an incredible legacy in the sport. And I think more so than with Althea Gibson, whose history I was really not familiar with to to any degree. Arthur Ashe, I feel like I did know quite a bit about coming into this. Certainly, I was alive during the period of his suffering with having contracted HIV, AIDS um, in the late 80s and early 90s and his subsequent passing and the naming of the stadium, the Arthur Ashe Stadium. Um, and that meant that I was able to to go back in time and, and, and understand some of his history at the time. But certainly preparing for this particular podcast has really opened my eyes and and I think that and 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 opened my ears to listening to the stories of all the people that we've spoken to as part of this journey we've got Matt's research into Arthur Ashe as well which is just exhaustive as far as I can, can see and and I feel like we have an opportunity here 
for the many people that have that certain knowledge of him like I do to really build on that and for people that really only know him by the name being on the stadium the Arthur Ashe Stadium it's a chance to really discover why that man's name is on that stadium yeah I don't know about you Matt but for me this focus on Arthur Ashe now it it emphasizes for me kind of what we were saying at the end of the Althea Gibson podcast a the importance of things like the naming of stadiums those those naming memorial opportunities but also how insufficient they are how 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 they're just it's not enough to put someone's name on something and think okay job done we're sufficiently remembering him and acknowledging his contribution because i know the name i know that he won the US Open or I, I I knew the name I knew that he won the US Open I knew that he was a great activist and I I thought I knew enough um because uh, you know we say his name a lot but I definitely didn't know enough um and I'm I'm glad to say hopefully uh, we do now and we're going to share that with you today Mm, yes, yeah, quite a daunting podcast to do in 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 some respects because it's almost impossible to do justice to the man that he was, and hopefully, hopefully we will. But I mean, the first time I became aware of Arthur Ashe was obviously knowing about his name on the stadium. So I I definitely do agree that it is so important that those that those things exist in the sport. And actually, I remember the one time I went to the US Open, I found myself sitting on the Arthur Ashe Stadium watching not a great match between Kyle Edmund and Denis Shapovalov. And my mind was wandering and I thought, what what do I know about Arthur Ashe? And I actually sought out the um, the bookshop that they have at the US Open on site. And I... And I of course he did. Uh, and I went to find... Of course find, he did. I went to find one of the books that was very useful for this research, talking about his Wimbledon final in... 75 against Jimmy Connors so I do think those those kind of little well I mean it's a big tribute really to Arthur Ashe to put his name on that stadium and and they do help us but equally we have to play an active role in that and we have to go and search for more information ourselves and what I would say on Arthur Ashe is as soon as I began reading about him I just wanted to read more and more and more and I ended up I ended up going, getting a little bit carried away and reading a. How, how, how many days did it take you to read the six hundred page biography of Arthur Ashe, Matt? I think I read it in five days. It was, it was an awful lot of extended periods. Yeah, this it's been a deep dive, even by your standards, Matt. Um, and everyone should be um, salivating at the prospect of that because the research has been quite something formidable to behold um and there is certainly a lot to behold from the from the 49 years of Arthur Ashe's Arthur Ashe's life he was he was born in Richmond Virginia in 1943 um the son of a, a parks policeman um and of course he was born into a world where restrictions were were placed upon him everywhere he turned places he couldn't go things he couldn't do um because of the colour of his skin. That was just reality um, for for people born into that world at that time. Um, and his mother died when he was six years old. And I mean, goes without saying that that would be a, a formative experience for, for any child. But he is, he has spoken, he spoke so much in his life about how, just how formative that, that was for him, how, how much that 
impact his his every approach to the world um and and one of the quotes that you dug out matt which i can i can barely bring myself to repeat um about the death of his mother was i am terribly insistently acutely aware of an emptiness in my soul that only she could have filled um and i'm i'm sure i'm sure anybody that's lost a parent um, probably at any time but certainly in childhood can probably relate to those words but there's just desperate sadness, desperate sadness in those words. Mm. Uh, I listened to an interview this morning with Arthur Ashe from 1984, uh, a BBC Radio 4 interview called In the Psychiatrist's Chair with Dr. Anthony Clare. And he, all the way through the interview, his mother would come up as part of everything that informed his decision making and his response to things and how he viewed life um and uh yeah he 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 said it had just an incredible effect on him and he 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 had therapy and and in order to try to understand why he behaved and thought about things the way he did he said he said what happens to a young boy when they lose their mother at the age of 6 is that they block out all of their the years that led up to that. So he says, I have very few memories of that time because because it had such an effect on me. It's it's something that is touched upon so much, isn't it, Matt, in, in Raymond Arsenault's biography of, of Arthur that, that you've read and and how significant it was in his, his evolution as a tennis player. Raymond Arsenault said, tennis became the antidote to his mel- melancholy and it became sort of quite well known, didn't it, that that Arthur Ashe used to get up and hit, what was it, thousand balls before breakfast every morning. He, there were all these recollections of him being this, this man sort of driven by some sort of ethereal force that people couldn't quite understand or, or, or get a handle on. Mm. And then, even then, even when he had turned to tennis, he then had to face the obstacle of tennis being a notoriously elitist and racist sport to be honest I mean he grew up in in Richmond and and the best club in Richmond with the best courts was called Bird Park and Arthur Ashe who was this incredibly promising junior player was was never allowed to play there and he would tell stories about how when he when he became famous people would come up to him saying oh I I saw you playing at Bird Park when you were younger and and he would know they were lying because he never played there and that was because of you know he was he was in the south the jim crow laws were in and he he just wasn't allowed to play he was able to play in the park where his as you said his father was the kind of gatekeeper of that park and he was able to play there but all throughout his um his childhood he was you know he had to confront this and i think he was too a little bit too young to be angry or embarrassed about that. But he did talk about how it leaves these scars, these bruises on your psyche. And he, and he came to think of the world as this, as this segregated place. And he came to think of his place in it as inferior compared to other people. And I think this, I think his childhood is incredibly important as it is with most people in sort of shaping him and turning him into the man that he would grow up to be as this as this incredible guiding light and activist yeah for anybody that 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 doesn't know 
about the Jim Crow laws. I'm sure I'm sure all of our listeners in the states do, and, and many elsewhere. They were they were the state and federal level laws in the U.S. which legally enforced racial segre- segregation across across the South, um, which of which uh, the state of Virginia was a part. Um, and yes, they started to be rowed back in the early 50s. I think in in 54 was when. Um, it was declared unconstitutional that that public schools, state schools, um, could enforce segregation. But it wasn't really until um, the Civil Rights Act and of eight of nineteen sixty four and the Voting Rights Act of nineteen sixty five. So, you know, when Arthur Ashe is well into his tennis career, that though the Jim Crow laws were were officially and legally overruled, you know, he spent his whole childhood legally legally segregated um and legally second best to his to his his white peers and even when he went off to college on the west coast he went to UCLA he there was a story that he was dating a white woman and the white woman's mother refused to let Arthur Ashe into her house because he was black and that was the kind of racism that he had to confront not only growing up in Richmond and he thought that going out to the west would be a little bit of an an escape from all that and yet it was still there in his life at that stage and yeah I just thought it was just an incredibly powerful tale of what he had to overcome. He was the first African-American to receive a scholarship for college tennis. Uh, He went to to UCLA um, but he was also offered a place at, at Harvard, a scholarship place at Harvard, but elected to go to UCLA. But his his progress to that point was helped immensely by somebody that we heard a lot about in the Althea Gibson podcast, Dr. Johnson. Um, Dr. Walter Johnson, who set up this, I suppose now you would call it an academy um, for, for young people black players and they used to to travel all the country and get them into to competitions and and try and try and talent spot people that could could be like Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson were trailblazers and flag bearers for black athletes and um yeah you you dug out a uh, uh, a video made by the a feature made by the tennis channel David presented by by Mary Carrillo today about Dr Johnson and and the attempts at the moment to to rebuild and sort of immortalize the well his academy I suppose yeah. because it is it is such an important piece of tennis history and it was his nephew that had taken it on in in honor of him and and the USTA had, had invested money to try to get the entire setup renovated which was a single court at heart it was a single court when it when it began and that's what dr johnson invited and produced players from and Althea Gibson being one and Arthur Ashe another in, in this interview I heard with Arthur earlier today he he talked about being a pr- prolific reader of biographies and somebody who would pick out moments that made people in their lives and he said that moment made me because if I had not been spotted 
on a tennis court by Dr. Johnson. At that particular point in time, he just happened to be walking by and he saw me play and I got my opportunity. And that led to him being produced as a tennis player or, 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 or brought along. And, and my mind goes back to the interview we did with Yannick Noah a few weeks ago. And it was Arthur Ashe spotting Yannick Noah on his tour of Cameroon and and bringing him over to, to France. And suddenly we've got a guy who has won the French Open and has done all the things that Yannick Noah has done. And these moments in time um, and... Doesn't Dr. Johnson, from everything we've heard about and read, sound the most extraordinary person? Absolutely. And we're lucky to have, to have spoken to a couple of people that, that had the pleasure not only of, of, of meeting Arthur, but meeting Dr. Johnson as well. Um, we're going to hear first from, from James Blake, um, who, as you know, I, I spoke to a few weeks ago about a number of issues. But, I mean, Arthur Ashe was an immense influence on his life and career still is. Arthur Ashe's autobiography was called Days of Grace, um, famously, and uh, James Blake published uh, his book a few years ago called Ways of Grace, obviously um, echoing and in tribute to, to a man that was hugely influential on his life. Um, and as we'll hear now, at, a, at an extremely fundamental level, an influence on his life. I credit him indirectly with um, with getting me into tennis because he got he's the the inspiration for my dad getting um, into tennis. And if my dad wasn't into tennis. I don't know if he would have met my mom, and I don't know if I would have been around. And then I wouldn't have been obviously as interested in in tennis if my dad wasn't so um, so passionate about it. So um, and then when my dad taught me more about him, um, obviously I was too young to really watch his matches, um, except seeing a little bit on video later. But um, so for him, I, as I learned more about him, I got more and more inspired. My, what my dad taught me about him, um, the way he conducted himself, the fact that he valued education, uh, the way that he fought for uh, for human rights throughout his entire career is probably better known um, for what he did for humanity, even more so than just being a Wimbledon champion. Um, is it was always hugely inspirational to me and. Um, but, you know, I kind of always thought about the fact that he, when he was on top of the world or when he was in dire situations, he always thought about others first. And that's something that makes a, that makes someone a hero, not, um, being extremely talented and, and working hard and, uh, on the, on the practice court and being a great champion. That's, that makes someone impressive. Um, but really to, to kind of vault all the way to being a hero is, you know, at the, the time when he was on top of the world, he's fighting to, to eradicate apartheid from South Africa and using his voice and platform for that. And then when he's stricken with HIV AIDS, instead of using his wealth and using his uh, celebrity to, to make his life easier at that time, he tried to help others that are in, uh, in tougher situations. And um, that to me shows, uh, shows the true character of, of an absolute hero. And there's a lot in there that we will be picking up on over the course of, of this podcast, his relationship and travel to to South Africa is incredibly tragic and untimely death and and his legacy in terms of activism and and athletes and tennis players involved in activism but just to stay on the chronology of it all um and and the significance of Dr Johnson um in 
in the development of, of Arthur Ashe and, and many other black players as well. We're going to hear from from Leslie Allen now, who, although her, her time there didn't coincide with Arthur Ashe, she also spent some time at Dr. Johnson's Academy and and she had first-hand experience of, of the man and exactly how influential he was. We called him Dr. J, right? At Dr. J's, it was one court and his house, a four-square house. If the lot was 100 by 100, all of this magic happened on that one court, in that one space. Um, so Dr. Johnson was the head of the ATA Junior Development. So any aspiring or top junior player was sent to his house, his, his camp. Most people went for the summer. And then it was a lesson in how to navigate this world. So you had to eat at a certain time and have good table manners Uh, You weren't allowed to go off the property of his house. Um, Essentially, all these rules and regulations that he had around us training and what we did was to keep these children safe because they were traveling in the deep south in the 60s. And um, so for me, he talked about how how your demeanor on the court was essentially be stoic um, and if a ball landed close to the line and you weren't sure it was in without a doubt the ball was the ball was in so um all of these things which seemed to be onerous or difficult to a kid i was probably 11 was there for a couple of weeks i didn't i didn't travel um i realized he made it tough for us so if we could survive him when we got out into the world whatever our world was going to be it was going to be a piece of cake because nobody had challenged us like Dr. J. And we heard a little bit about this in the Althea Gibson pod, didn't we? That that quote that Dr. Johnson was preparing them for a world that didn't want them. He was preparing them for a, a white world. He was drilling into them that they didn't have the luxury, the, the privilege of being able to question line calls because they wouldn't be treated fairly they would and they would be categorized as an angry black person he, they were taught to to turn the other cheek no matter what injustice they were facing inside the lines of a, a tennis court or or outside of them their the aim of dr johnson was to produce tennis players that were too good to be ignored by a world that that wanted to try and ignore them and I think in all the reading you do about Arthur Ashen, whenever you hear him talk, you hear that influence come through. The way, even if he might be raging inside, even if he might be doing the most significant activism possible, he's doing it in a certain manner that he will not allow anybody to take shots at him as a result of. His manner will never be called into question, whether he's on the court, whether he's... Uh, in life, he has the same disposition, and it seems to all come from this rearing by Dr. Johnson. And that was something his father taught him as well. He said, "What you've got is your good name, and you and you need to maintain that." And um, just just a note on Dr. Johnson that I was I was pleased to read that he was posthumously inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame in uh, 2009, I think. So at least his very, very significant contributions have been recognised in that way as well. Yeah, and uh, works to to salvage and restore and immortalise his academy are 
are ongoing. I mean, I say academy, as Leslie Allen described that, it was just one court, one court and kind of a, 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 yeah, an adjoining house. Um, extraordinary. Um, so yeah, he, he, he passes under Dr. Johnson's tutelage. He becomes the first African American to receive a college scholarship. He goes to UCLA, um, which of course is, is where Jackie Robinson had gone. He was in the class of, of 1942 and UCLA had kind of prided itself, prided itself on being a pioneer for recruiting African American athletes. It still wasn't, you know, it wasn't equality, <laughs> equality of, um, of, of, athletic students by any means and it was very much more sort of headlines you know just as without Thea Gibson we'll let one black person in and shout and scream about how we're letting black people in it wasn't like that at all but it was certainly better than nothing um and he was playing grand slam tournaments while an amateur at UCLA, it's something that I hadn't realised at all. It was obviously before um, tennis became open in, in 1968, but he was a, a UCLA student entering Grand Slam tournaments. Um, his first US Nationals, which the tournament that would end up becoming the US Open, it was in 1951, uh, 1959, sorry, and he faced Rod Laver in round one. Yeah, he... Um... <laughs> And he lost in straight sets. But it was interesting because I think he knew that that was what he wanted to do. He was obviously training hard for it. But he didn't know that it would bring about any kind of financial or professional security or employment. Because as you said, tennis tennis wasn't open yet. So he wasn't sure that he was going to even be able to make a living out of tennis at that stage. And yet he was still, as you said, studying at college, going around playing Grand Slam tournaments. Like it's, it's, it's a completely different world. It's, it's quite difficult to, to kind of get your head around the sort of balancing act that would have to go on when that was happening. But it was, it, it was normal at the time, and he, and he was doing it. And Charlie Passerell, who was his close friend at UCLA, was also doing it. And, um, yeah, it's kind of extraordinary to think now. He must have been the coolest guy at college. <laughs> I'm just off to play the French Open back in two weeks. <laughs> Well, if I do well, back in two weeks. Um, yeah, extraordinary. I had no, I had no idea that um, that that he. I was, I was aware of the fact that he was the the first man to win the U.S. Open in in the Open era, but I had no idea that he had been toiling away on the tour as an amateur whilst also juggling college studies with it all for for many many years before that. Um, he became the first black player ever selected for the U.S. Davis Cup team, in, and that was in 1963. So that was five years before before he won his first Grand Slam, and that was the the U.S. Open in 1968, the very first ever Open era winner of the U.S. Open. And of course, when he won that tournament, in order to maintain that Davis Cup eligibility and have time away from from army duty. Um, to to play the most significant tournaments, Arthur was required to maintain his amateur status. And because of that, he couldn't accept the $14,000 of prize money for winning the US Open. And that prize money was instead given to to Tom Ocker, the man he beat in the final, while, while Arthur received just $20 a day expenses for his win. 
It's just extraordinary, isn't it? Just to think about that now, when you consider they're getting $3 million or whatever it is to, to win the US Open. Um, do, you, do you think he had to submit receipts for his expenses? <laughs> Subway tickets. I mean, you know, at least at least Arthur Ashe went on and straddled those eras, and and again, we it brings you back to want to to listen to those Althea Gibson stories again of of how that was her life, that was her tennis experience of just not being able to earn any money. Let's let's hear a little bit more about that U.S. Open win in 1968, and let's hear it from from one of tennis's great historians, Steve Flink, that, that Matt has, uh, has been talking to. Um, and for, for Steve, Arthur Ashe was incredibly instrumental to him at, at a very important time in his life. He inspired me a lot. I mean, again, I, I started watching in the mid-60s. Arthur was, Arthur was starting to peak. I think that the first sort of major step toward his peak was 1965, and that was the year that I was... I had seen my first Wimbledon and my first U.S. championships the summer of 65 as I was 12 turning 13. And Arthur made this great run to the semifinals of, at Forest Hills. And I watched him beat Roy Emerson, which was a big win. And it was he was so exhilarating to watch. He was His game was so dynamic and, and so... Uh, he was very adventuresome. He was a spectacular shot maker with this uh, wonderful backhand. He could do anything he wanted off his backhand side and hit the most flamboyant winners. And he had, he had a great serve, which again was the anchor of his game. And so you, you didn't always know what was coming. There were streaky patches, but this combination of this explosive game that he had and then the stoic personality, I found it kind of irresistible. I love the fact that he was so cool, so composed, and yet spoke so loudly with his racket, expressed himself so beautifully with his racket, with the types of shots that he attempted to hit. So, yes, I mean, that was a big deal for me personally because 65 was my baptism with the game, you might say. And and I, that was when that sort of led me toward the career I was going to have. I became so immersed in it, and that was the year that I, I started following it with sort of religious fervor and he he played a major role in that i was inspired by watching emerson win wimbledon that year but i think arthur was a particularly inspirational figure and and he remained so in the years to come and i would later get to know him pretty well also but uh that summer 65 no doubt he played a pivotal role for me and how did the crowds react to him when he was playing was it similar similarly inspired as you do you think yeah, oh, I, I, I think the crowds loved him. I think the crowds loved him. Again, there was there was this sort of uh, mystery of what was going to happen next because you know he he wasn't afraid to fail in the sense that he would go for it. He would he, he would uh, sometimes try shots that were against the you know weren't necessarily percentage shots. That changed later in his career. Became a little more percentage oriented by the early to mid seventies, but he he was just so daring he was so audacious with what he was trying to do on the court and so the galleries they did respond to that and because he comported himself so beautifully uh the crowds especially the american crowds were wholeheartedly with him they they loved arthur and he won the first u.s open of the open era what are your memories yes he did 
That was so memorable, that first U.S. Open of 68, because Arthur was, he was seated fifth. He was considered a, a prime candidate. for. The, he, he was considered, a, prime would be the wrong word. He was he was given a, an, more of an outside chance to win, but the, the prevailing view was that uh, Labor, Rod Labor, who'd won Wimbledon, Ken Rosewall, maybe uh, John Newcomb, who was the who had won the last amateur event in '67? A lot of these guys were the, the, the Australians, especially were they were the heavy favorites. And Arthur, who had had a great summer and had been in the semifinals of Wimbledon, was given a a reasonable chance, but it didn't look that good because he was going to have to play Labor, uh, the top seed. You know, it was just worked out the number one versus five in the quarterfinals. They were slated to play, but then Cliff Drysdale who would come out of South Africa is now a renowned commentator living in the United States and great two handed back and cliff upset labor in five sets. And that opened up everything for Ash because he loved playing Drysdale. That matchup was far more favorable to him than, than playing the left-handed labor. And then he went on to beat his Davis cup teammate, Clark Gravener in the semis. And he beat Tom Ocker, the Netherlands in the final Arthur was still an amateur at that time. So he couldn't take the prize money. Some, some nice people who appreciated what he did tried to send him some money later on. They wanted him to have the money, but he couldn't take the, 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 the prize money, but it hardly mattered in a way because what he had done to ignite American tennis by winning the first U S open against the odds and probably against his own expectations was, was just spectacular. Yeah. Just an, an absolutely jaw-dropping, spectacular moment um, in tennis's history, and I, I obviously, obviously, I wasn't there. Not even David Law was born at that time. Am right. I correct? <laughs> um, but minus, I, I do minus five by that point. I was. <laughs> I do get the feeling that it was a moment that was seen as such at the time. It's not something. I mean, obviously, it's grown in significance over time as well, as as Arthur became even more significant not just as a tennis player but as an activist and all of that um and everything that's came come after it has enhanced it but i get the impression matt that this was a you know world stops turning jaws drop everybody pays attention moment at the time in 1968 yes i really think so and i think it was also enhanced by the fact that Ash beat, as Steve Flink said there, Clark Grabner in the semifinals. And that became, I mean, the story of that match became a book called Levels of the Game, written by John McPhee, which is which is seen as one of the sort of great feats of journalism, really, of sports journalism, because I was reading that John McPhee sat down for hours with both Clark Grabner and Arthur Ashe, both incidentally great glasses wearers. It was a, it was a match of, of both players wearing glasses. Um, and he sat down with them both and sort of went over the match with them and got their thoughts. And he just presented this incredible profile of that match as, as a match of contrasts, really. Um, and it became very well known and very significant. And, and Arthur Ashe became, became very big as well. And I, I love the enthusiasm in Steve Flink's voice there when he talks about Arthur Ashe, because he's obviously a very very passionate tennis man, Steve Flink, but he's he's interested in, in the numbers and the statistics and the records. But to kind of hear him get quite emotional talking about Arthur Ashe, I found was, was really quite touching and probably an indicator of just how significant 
Ash's rise was and how kind of transformative it was for people watching him. I watched uh, some of the footage of that final before we started recording, just to try to get a feel for it. And and that's what I think you're describing in a way, as you say, Steve was is great at putting things into perspective in terms of the significance, the, the statistical significance of, of various records and achievements. But as you say, there's more to him than that. And, the, and when you watch Arthur Ashe, you can understand why he gets people, why people end up being drawn to watch him, because you don't know what's coming next. When in that final, you're watching some of the shot making and the ideas, the thoughts that are obviously emanating from him to his racket and the things he's able to do. He's a, He was a spectacular sight. I, I didn't realise, quite honestly, how imaginative a tennis player he was and what a, what a kind of dynamic player he was. Um, very athletic, powerful. Um, and, you know, I'm coming. I'm coming to get you with my game. And it, it's, uh, it was fantastic to watch. He, uh, he put together a 72 and 10 win-loss record for that year in 1968. And he helped the USA to, to win the Davis Cup um, as well. And of course, as we've heard, he, he had to maintain his amateur status in order to to maintain his selection for for the Davis Cup. And he went on to win subsequent Grand Slams. Um, he won the Australian Open in 1970, so a bit of a gap before he won his his next one. Uh, in three sets, he beat Dick Creedy in the final there. And then there is a gap before he wins his next one. And that comes at Wimbledon in 1975. Um, and we're going to hear now from uh, a man that also contributed to our Althea Gibson podcast, of course, Richard Evans, who, who of course, recalls the 1968 US Open win. Um, but even more than that, he recalls his Wimbledon win in 1975, saying, as you'll hear now, that that for him was Arthur's greatest ever moment. His moment of towering glory was beating Jimmy Connors at Wimbledon in 1975. I mean, that was the single most intellectually interesting match I've ever seen because he played totally contrary to his style. Um, Charlie Passwell, Donald Dell, and he repaired to the Playboy Club, which was one block up the road from the Hilton and Park Lane in those days and was a uh, sort of hangout for some of the players. And the night before, they went up there and had dinner and, and plotted the victory. And they, Jimmy Connors that year, um, following on from his 1974, when he was winning everything, was considered to be invincible in the locker room. No one thought uh, they could beat him. No one gave Arthur any hope because he'd often lost to Connors. And Connors was on fire, and people said, well, you know, be lucky to get a set. And he went out there and played completely differently to he ever played before or again. He just took all the pace off the ball and lobbed and drop-shotted and softball and pushed and dinked. And Jimmy, who was a small man uh, and couldn't generate his own power, even with that desperate racket he played with, um, that Wilson T2000, um, he needed the power of his opponent to hit winners. 
and suddenly he had nothing to play with. Uh, and especially on the with his left-handed grip, if you got him at the net and dinked him low on the forehand side, he he literally could not get the ball in play. It either went into the net or it went long. It, it, it was ge- geometry. If you if you got it in the right place, he could not volley the ball back into the opposite court, and that's what Arthur did frequently. And um, he, Jimmy was completely bewildered. Lost the first two sets very easily. Came back and won the third, and that that was when Arthur's uh, incredible sort of intellect and brain power and, and uh, character came into because. Having lost the third set, a lot of people would have panicked and reverted to the norm. You know, oh my God, it's not working anymore. Let's go back to playing tennis the way I know how. But Arthur didn't. He didn't panic. And he just went on softballing him and Jimmy fell apart all over again. And as Jimmy was was suing Arthur and Donald Dell and the ATP at the same time, it was a moment of considerable celebration. Yeah, well, just to to fill you in on the the, the details there that that Richard referenced at the end, um, Arthur Ashe was was instrumental in the founding of the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals, in 1972, and he became the association's president in 1974. So the year before this Wimbledon final against Jimmy Connors, at which time. Uh, Ash and Connor's relationship was rather strained because Connor's was suing the ATP, of which Ash was president, for ten million dollars for what he alleged was restraint of trade. Um, after the ATP um, and French officials opposed um, his uh, entry to the 1974 French Open because he was a contracted member of World Team Tennis. Um, and just two days before the start of Wimbledon in 1975, it had been announced that Connors um, was suing Ash for himself for $5 million for comments in a letter Ash had written to ATP members in his role as president that criticised Connors' insistence that Davis Cup captain Dennis Ralston should be fired and Connors' unpatriotic boycott of competition which had started after Rolson left him out of the team against the West Indies in Jamaica in March of 72. Um, on final day, on finals day, Ash pointedly and symbolically wore red, white and blue wristbands throughout the match and wore his USA emblazoned Davis Cup warm-up jacket whilst walking out onto centre court and during the award ceremony while receiving the trophy and a winner's cheque for £10,000. Soon after the final, Connors dropped the libel suit. I love the fact that he is suing him for $5 million when Ash is only picking up 23000 for winning for winning Wimbledon. <laughs> so where's that money coming from? I don't know. <laughs> that jacket's iconic though, isn't it? I'd, yeah. I had never, I had never watched that final against Connors. Unfortunately, the, the full final isn't, doesn't seem to be available. I've watched snippets of it here and there, but I knew that image of Arthur Ashe in that USA jacket. 
Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful image, and actually, I mean, I think there's about a 25 minute highlight package that Wimbledon put out of that final, and and it is it was really something to watch back to back the 68 US Open and then the 75 Wimbledon, and to see the difference with how Ash plays. And he, the only thing I can liken it to is 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 something you see more on in clubs and parks where one player just isn't playing proper tennis that the other player, but he's beating you, you know, you're trying to play proper tennis and the other player is just trying to lob you and dink you and, and mess you about and not play normal tennis. And, but he's doing it at the highest level imaginable successfully on Wimbledon center court to beat Jimmy Connors. And it's just, I mean, you, you would, you would imagine if, if you saw it now, you would imagine the crowd almost laughing at some of the shots, the, the audacity of a player to kind of resort to tactics like like that but they worked there's a wonderful moment in their match where ash has reeled off a a string of games i think six or seven in a row and someone in the crowd shouts out come on jimmy and he replies i'm trying for christ's sakes and um it was just it was just kind of an illustration of how irritating it was to be playing ash on that day as you said with his moonballing and his dinking and his incredible tactics but yeah i mean ash ash really didn't like Jimmy Connors I, I, in this biography that that I read, they um, they actually quoted Arthur Ashe's diary, and he had apparently written that every time I passed Connors in the locker room, it took all my willpower not to punch him in the mouth. You know, he he really didn't like Jimmy Connors. He thought he was selfish and arrogant, and he didn't appreciate his attitude to Davis Cup, which for Arthur Ashe was probably the most important competition in his career at the Davis Cup. And all of those things, Matt, you've just described are (laughs) character traits he shared with John McEnroe, (laughs) a hatred of Jimmy Connors and a love of the Davis Cup. Uh, And and one of the things that struck me most about um, reliving the... Actually, it wasn't for Relived, was it? It was for our worst ever Grand Slam finals episode uh, when I subjected myself to some of the 1983 men's Wimbledon final where John McEnroe just ate poor Chris Lewis for breakfast. Um, what what stuck out for me most was John McEnroe wearing a replica of Arthur Ashe's Davis Cup jacket from 1975. John McEnroe hero worshipped Arthur Ashe and their their careers very briefly coincided, but he he knew him more. Um, as a as his Davis Cup captain, and we can hear from him now an interview that that David did with uh, John McEnroe uh, a while back on on why and how he he loved Arthur. I actually met Arthur pretty early on and played doubles with him as an amateur. He took me sort of under his wing a little bit, which was pretty nice for him to do because here he is, this guy who's the consummate gentleman, being with sort of this young hothead. And so uh, he, he sort of gave me, like, credibility in a sense, that I wasn't just this whiner, you know, spoiled kid. And, and, and so that meant a lot from that standpoint. And, and obviously he helped tennis a lot because sort of uh, the way he played was um, considered at the time as a big hitter. And then all of a sudden he outthought Connors at Wimbledon. So all of a sudden there was like, whoa, he's, you know, this... This approach is really interesting that you know, he came in with like a totally different game plan. So when he beat Jimmy in 75 at Wimbledon, that was an unbelievable thing. And 
And also, he he was my Davis Cup captain for a number of years, and uh, we had a lot of good moments, probably more off the court than on. We had a lot of good talks, and um, half the time during the match, he was chasing me, trying to get me to stop yelling at an umpire or whatever, but uh, we had some good times and laughs, and... um, it was just really tragic to sort of, it seemed like so unlucky because I actually played him in the Masters in 79. That was my first sort of major title. I beat Arthur in a very close match in the final, and um, it felt like his time was way too short, but uh, certainly his influence on me was big. I love hearing John McEnroe, hearing and seeing John McEnroe when he just, yeah, is just like a sort of, bouncy kid about somebody or, or just slightly uncool awkward teenager that talking about someone that he thinks is really cool he's like it with Bjorn Borg isn't he um, and I, I loved hearing that come across in the way he talked about Arthur Ashe mm. he gave me some credibility I loved that line yeah no he, and he did used to talk about Bjorn Borg in that way of somebody who kind of even though Arthur Ashe clearly disapproved of a lot of what John McEnroe <laughs> did, and he's quite, he was quite open about that, he also loved him and thought a lot of him. And it was one of those that he they, they put aside their considerable differences and almost like brothers in a way, an older brother and a younger brother. And, um, and I, I think it was, it's, it's lovely to hear that. And as much as Arthur Ashe is considered deliberate approach was part of who he was there was also a part of him that he would he would say was some he would sometimes get fed up of being the nice guy and he would occasionally say that he would he'd just love one day where he could behave like John McEnroe and that that would be acceptable kind of what Leslie Allen was saying but he knew that if he'd behave like that he he wouldn't have been kind of palatable to a lot of people um but yeah, I just find this relationship between Ash and McEnroe so interesting for that reason and also their Davis Cup because McEnroe was part of this team of quite highly strung players and then you had Arthur Ashe, the kind of cool captain on the side. And I think there was a lot of incidences where there were maybe close to some fallings out. Um, but Arthur Ashe led them to two consecutive victories as captain when he first became captain and that was that was a great honour for him to be Davis Cup captain. Tony Tony Trabert had been Davis Cup captain before, and and he said, "Look, we don't have a list for who's the next Davis Cup captain. You're the only one that we want to be the next one." And he assumed that role. And I think I think eventually there was some controversy over the fact that people thought Ash was being too political while he was in that role as Davis Cup captain. I don't think Ash. Out, ever outwardly said that but it's certainly what he felt and that was perhaps why he was eventually cast aside from that role as Davis Cup captain and the results went downhill a little bit but to start with he was he was a successful captain with very good players but very difficult players to manage in terms of John McEnroe and Peter Fleming. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Because he was, he was political during his career in his own way. He was more political than Althea Gibson will come on to... To, or more overtly political than Althea Gibson, um, but we'll come on to talk about the fact that for for some people they didn't consider him to be political enough. Um, but he obviously grew into the, his role of, of activism, embraced it more and more after his retirement in in 1979. Um, but he 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 was he was active and juggling this all throughout his career. One of the the ongoing themes of of his career, starting kind of the saga started in 1969, was his relationship with South Africa. It was in 1969 that he was he first applied for a, a visa to be able to play there, and he was denied because of the colour of his skin. Um, he was he was finally accepted and offered a visa to play in the South Africa Open in 1973. And he wrestled, I believe, Matt, with the decision to to go, um, and and it was a huge, huge deal that that he did go, and it it came hand in hand with a lot of criticism. Yeah, the it strikes me that the reaction to him going was almost almost schizophrenic. You know, he was he was determined to go, but there was this divide over whether his presence there would be a good thing, and. As you said, he took a lot of criticism. People called him an Uncle Tom or they said that his visit was tokenism or kind of propaganda on the on the part of the government in South Africa to kind of use him as this this pawn, really, to kind of show show the world that they were making progress when the reality was actually very different and apartheid was still in place. Um but it it does strike that reaction does strike me now as unfortunate because 
you know, the reason Ash was denied a visa was because he was so outspoken and publicly critical of the South African government's regime. And he believed in a kind of gradualist approach, I think, to activism. And he thought that his presence there could break down some stereotypes and he wanted to engage with the issue constructively and see it for himself. Um, and and he thought that small concessions and the South African government granting him entry was a small concession would incline and go towards greater progression. And he had this sort of long-term level-headedness and vision for it. Um, I think he called himself a little bit of progress. And Donald Dell, who was Ash's agent, would say that he would see the faces of, of children who would watch Arthur Ashe and kind of they would be so inspired by him. And even even the image of a of a white ball boy giving Arthur Ashe the ball, you know, rather than the other way around, was was inspiring to a lot of kids. And I think sort of the long term impact of Arthur Ashe's South Africa trip is incredibly important. And Nelson Mandela, when he eventually got released from prison and was allowed to go to America he was asked who he wanted to meet and he said how about that man Arthur Ashe and I think that's just an indication of the good that Arthur did by kind of persevering with his with his stance to go to South Africa and make a difference. And there there was some speculation wasn't there that he later regretted um, the the decision that he took uh, made at the time to go to South Africa, that is something that that Richard Evans, over the course of my conversation with him, thought wasn't the case. He had uh, conversations, he says, with Arthur in the the later stages of his life, where he he definitely didn't feel regret about about his his decision, and he would have he would have received criticism had he had he not decided to go. I mean, he he couldn't hundred percent win with that with that decision um and I, I i can't imagine the strain of juggling all of that with also being a, a professional tennis player but generally it did seem to me that he his view of himself was was very clear although i'm sure he would have wrestled with these situations as they came along once he came to a view he quietly went about firmly believing in what he was doing leading by example being out there and showing by actions rather than using just his voice and I think that was one of the reasons why maybe during his playing career he wasn't always as active as people wanted to be because as you said David he was he was so considered about these things he wanted to properly think them through and and kind of think, okay, what is my stance on this issue? He was a voracious reader and he wanted to be he wanted to be informed about things before he spoke about them. So he, he sort of took his time. But eventually he would he would develop into this kind of person of, of full blown activism really. But it, 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 it did take a little bit of time. He he also clearly knew that that his chances of having an impact would be that much greater once he'd won once he'd made a name and been successful and it was a lot easier to be listened to he he definitely shared Althea's view that he wanted his racket and his behavior to do a lot of the talking that he wanted to to lead by example 
but but where he di- diverged from Althea's approach was he was he was more comfortable with the sense of responsibility um and and the burden of that responsibility he accepted it whereas Althea there's that quote from her about she totally believed in the power of the individual and she re- rejected the sort of sense of a collective a collective of her of her representing anyone or representing her race Arthur definitely definitely embraced representing his being a representative for his race and and all the 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 burden that came with that um and he embraced his his role as an activist and that's something that that we're going to hear now from from both Leslie Allen and Mary Carrillo talking about their their memories of Arthur Ashe and his his growing role over the course of his life as an activist. I saw him as an activist and somebody who did speak out versus I feel as though Althea, one being a female and coming years, just, just integrating tennis a few years after Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, um, she couldn't risk speaking out. And she very much was let my racket do my talking. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't have to be the, the spokesperson for the race or the activist for the race versus um, Arthur felt like he had that responsibility, that he had a platform and that he wanted to use his voice right from the start when he won the first U.S. Open. And, um, so could he be a spokesperson for every cause? No. And that might have been where pushback came from. My memory of him, even from a young age, that he was that he was this profoundly decent man, um, but he, who kind of knew he had to be measured and had to be thoughtful when he had to decide whether to go to South Africa to play, you know, exhibitions there. And there were blacks that railed against him. There were whites that railed against him. There were tennis players that thought he was doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and he just, again, he stood apart. He stood and he, he sized up the situation for himself. He knew that if he were to play uh, in a country of apartheid, and there were little boys and girls of color who could see this man with all this freedom, um, with all this personal power walking around. He knew that was more important than any kind of heat he would take from anybody else. So I think he had to make a lot of decisions like that. More than anything, I remember Arthur, you know, if you've read uh, his books, uh, Days of Grace especially, this is a guy who talks about how... If you do have the chance and you really want to stand up for something you believe in, getting arrested is an importantly good thing for you. <laughs> like he marched against apartheid, he marched for Haitian refugees, like whatever, wherever he saw injustice, uh, unfairness, you know, he felt, all right, this is worth getting arrested for. If I can draw attention to this, if I can speak out against this, if I can make people more aware then that's something I should be doing with my time. For the sake of uh, my parents, Matt has edited out the uh, the section of that conversation where I pledge to Mary that I will get arrested <laughs> more often. Uh, that's what I've learned. <laughs> Always take the advice of Mary Carrillo. That's what we're agreed upon, isn't it? And <laughs> we will come on to talk about the uh, the the yeah the the arrests that that uh, Arthur Ashe uh, endured um, over the course of his his growing activism. One of them was just just five months before his death when he was in really 
ill health. I mean, just an extraordinary story. But just to to pick up there on the criticism that Arthur Ashe received as an activist from from some of his from some of his greatest peers, there was a lot of debate at the time and a lot of criticism from the black community of Arthur Ashe for his not being more involved in the civil rights movement. Um, again, from Donald Dell, he said, I was once in a meeting with, with Arthur at Andrew Young's house in Atlanta in 1968. He recalls there were 35 or 40 black leaders in the room. Arthur had just won the US Open and was a big name then. And Jesse Jackson yelled out, Brother Ash, you have to be more outspoken. Shout and yell and be a stronger hell-raising leader. I remember Arthur turned to him and said, Listen, Jesse, I'm not you. I don't do it with my mouth. I do it with my racket. And that's the way I want it to be. And everybody in the room cheered. It was the damnedest thing, the reaction of all the people in that room. Um, but yeah, you had you had Muhammad Ali and John Carlos and Jackie Rob- Robinson all pushing the envelope for civil rights faster and faster. And, and Ash did seem moderate by by comparison. And Billie Jean King even once commented sort of in relation to all of that, I'm blacker than Arthur because she spoke, I guess what she meant was she spoke out more for the, the cause than, than Arthur did, but he had his own way of doing things. Yeah. And I think, I think that was one of the reasons why later in his life he would, he would, as as we've heard, go on to get arrested for these things and put himself out there even more because he said, as my fame increased, so did my anguish. I don't think he felt ashamed that while others were kind of fighting injustice and taking part in the civil rights movement, he was playing tennis. Like he knew he was still, he was still breaking down barriers and being a trailblazer. But I think he felt like in the rest of his life, like he needed to make up for lost time a little bit and just just do more and and he would say that he couldn't he just couldn't sit sit by and let the world go by and um he thought it was you know if you were black there was there was a a mandate for you to do something and speak up if you had a platform um and yeah there's that quote as well that he he hated injustice more than he loved decorum which was how he kind of justified those two arrests and yeah i think I i think there is a there is a definite um, difference between his activism when he was a player and afterwards. We're going to hear just one last time now from from Richard Evans reflecting on on the criticism he received um, as as an activist from from fellow activists and just some some final words from Richard on on how on how he remembers Arthur. He he was criticised. Jesse Jackson, who who is the complete opposite to Arthur, you know, big, loud mouthed guy, and he he um, something came up at a meeting, and um, somebody said something about militancy, and uh, Jesse shouted across the room, "The trouble with you, Arthur, is you're not militant enough," and um, he had to put up with that all the time. And then, of course, when the the whole AIDS thing started, we saw uh, an even greater side of Arthur and how he handled it and um, everyone was very proud of him. You know, I, I, not being that way inclined, I don't often say that I love someone, a man, uh, but I loved Arthur. 
there was something about him that was very lovable. Uh, he had uh, a, a strange sort of personality. It was winsome and interesting and funny in a very low-key sort of way. But he he was just a lovable guy and um, very special, very special man. That last line from, from Richard there, those last few lines about how he loved Arthur, they were right at the end of, of my conversation with him. We'd been on the phone for about 45 minutes and, you know, he'd spoken in great eloquent detail about what a wonderful man Arthur was, um, what, a, what an impact it had on him personally. Richard had had been on those trips to South Africa with Arthur Ashe. He had, he had witnessed all of those things personally, had, had, a, had a good personal relationship with him had had the privilege of of knowing him and yet still it felt like that just spilled out at the end like he just had to get it off his chest there was this compulsion to confess his love for for this man and it it was so powerful um and it really it really stopped me in in my tracks Mm. i think anybody that knows richard and I've known him for more than 20 years. He's in his 80th year now. And he's been around, as we heard in the Althea Gibson story, since 1960, covering tennis. 60 years. And he doesn't talk like that, Richard. I mean, I, I really get on well with him. Uh, he's a formidable character in a debate <laughs> at times and uh, and can be quite scary sometimes. But he's always somebody that's absolutely encyclopedic about the game, um, very forthright in his opinions and views and strong. And I've never heard him talk like that about anybody else. And uh, and I agree. When I, when I heard those words as well, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it really says something. And you can hear something similar kind of in every everybody that we've spoken to. They all have that certain something in their voice when they're, when they're talking about him, for sure, as as you as you said, Matt, Steve Flink is a very forensic, methodical, scientific man in his approach to tennis and its history, and yet it was like sort of something came came over him a little when he was talking talking about Arthur Ashe. And we're going to share with you now some classic Mary Carillo content, um, some of her her favourite recollections of of Arthur from from over the years, including her first almost meeting with the man. I first met Arthur's apartment. <laughs> Would you like to hear more? Yes. <laughs> this is this is a, this is a great story and it and especially because it's true. Um, the year that John McEnroe got to the semis of Wimbledon and became John McEnroe in 1977, there was a uh, there was a sportscaster, and I don't know if you know of Howard Cosell in Great Britain, but he was a very famous sportscaster. Uh, Howard Cosell is doing a, a TV show, and one of the big segments is going to be on John McEnroe and what he's this 18-year-old ha- was able to do that summer. So Howard was going to speak to Arthur Ashe, who was a good friend of his. They'd done some TV together for ABC. They were going to talk to... Arthur Ashe, and they're going to talk to me because I didn't, you know, John's present and future was ahead of him, but I, I was around for his past. 
I had never done a big interview before. I had never, I don't think I'd ever done a TV interview before, certainly. And so I got picked up in a limousine and I'm taken to Arthur Ashe's apartment. That's where we were going to shoot this interview. And I'm all nervous, Catherine, about talking to Howard Cosell and about this big, you know, about this big interview. I, I was in way over my head and I'm sure I was utterly incoherent for the interview. But I walked into Arthur Ashe's apartment. Now, you got to know, I, I idolize Arthur Ashe. I thought he was the coolest guy in tennis. I mean, he was, I loved his jazzy, flashy game. It was bold, but it had all this kind of cool intelligence to it. But he had sort of a casino mentality too. You know, he had this, he just, and he looked so different from everybody. I mean, I, I'm, I was 11 years old when he won in 1968 at the U.S. Open. I, I couldn't believe how cool this guy was. And at a time, you know, he's got an afro and he's got, he's wearing bracelets and he's wearing beads. And <laughs> it was like this amazing, magnificent tropical fish had landed into tennis, you know. And now I'm in his apartment and there's no tennis stuff in his apartment. I'm looking around and I see all these, all this great artwork, which, you know, you could tell is from around the world. And there's an unbelievable record collection and what looks like a tremendous sound collection. And there are books everywhere. And it was this really cool, elegant apartment. And I stopped being nervous about the interview. I couldn't believe I was in Arthur's apartment. Um, and I'm looking around and I, I look at the, and he had a great view of the city. And um, there's, oh, look at that. There's his table. I bet that's where he eats his cornflakes every morning. That's where I'd eat my cornflakes. Um, you know, like, <laughs> I just, and I just, I'm looking around. And again, there's no pretense that this is a, a great tennis champion's apartment. He was a citizen of the world. And I'm, I just remember looking around. I was uh, 20 uh, on this day. And I'm looking around thinking to myself, you are just a tennis ball with feet. You have got to start upping your game because <laughs> this man is, this man is everything. Um, so that was the first time um, I met Arthur Ashe's apartment. And I didn't even get to meet Arthur that day, but I was lucky. I'm a New Yorker, so I got to meet Arthur. He also worked at HBO. He covered Wimbledon for HBO for a long while. And we got to see each other at various functions so I was I was lucky in those ways that I got to I got to know this man. You, know, you cling to every moment you had with a man like that, don't you? What was it like working with him? This this guy that you'd idolized as as a young as a young tennis player. We didn't overlap. I don't think maybe only the first year at HBO we overlapped. Um, and I thought he was again. I he was against. I keep using this word, but it's true. He was so measured, you know, for a man that had, you know, he had to fight the good fight and he had to weigh every word that he said. Um, I just, I couldn't believe his calm and his forbearance. Um, Do you want me to tell you the Band-Aid story? I think I shared with you my Band-Aid story of Arthur. Yes, please. (laughs) Not everyone has an Arthur Ashe Band-Aid story. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Arthur was, this was at Wimbledon, and he had cut his finger. And it was bleed. Yeah, fingers sometimes bleed profusely for no good reason. It wasn't that, you know. 
Um, but anyway, the production manager, she ran off. She was, you know, and she she ran to get uh, a box of Band-Aids and she's cracking them open and she's sort of nervously trying to, you know, stanch the blood and, you know, and Arthur calmly looks at the package and says to this lovely woman, um, it says these are flesh colored. <laughs> she's, she's like kind of like mortified and scared and like, oh, my God. That's not the color of your flesh. Like you could tell all these things were whirling around in her head. And then finally he just started giggling. He was a great, he was a giggler of some note. And he just said, I, I, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm okay. That's fine. In fact, Catherine, I will tell you the story. Um, on the day of, his, of Arthur's funeral, um, his funeral was in New York and I was in Florida. And I left on the morning of his funeral because I figured I'd get there and in time, but I had to stop through Atlanta and there was some kind of terrible weather um, that kept me locked in there. And time is going on. We're still on the ground. And then finally, Atlanta to New York, that flight got canceled. And I was bereft. And they, you know, they make that announcement, uh, go to the Delta, you know, information and they will rebook your flight. But I knew I was going to miss Arthur's funeral anyway. So I just sat there at the gate, uh, feeling sorry for myself, being angry at myself for having waited too long to make his funeral. And a young guy in a great looking suit came over to me and he said, you were going to New York? And I said, yes. And he said, were you going to Arthur's funeral? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm Arthur's nephew. <laughs> and he sat down beside me. I think he could tell I was... I was upset. Um, uh, and he sat down beside me and we swapped Arthur stories for a little while. And you know how it is, Catherine, when you are meeting somebody who's a relative of somebody, you know, and you look to them and you, you know, oh, does he look like him? Does he sound like him? You know, does he, does he have, and that's, and I can, and this guy did this, this young man did. And I, I, I just remember leaving that gate smiling. And thinking, well, you know what, Arthur will never be, he'll never be all the way gone if people like that uh, are around. I mean, tremendously moving stuff and a, a lovely note to end on there, one that's kind of never felt more pertinent because has his legacy ever felt more present in, in the sport than, than in the last few days? And we will come on to to talk about that and bring bring the Arthur Ashe story full circle. But just to... To, to reflect a bit on the the later years of of his life, that story Mary told about the funeral that was that was back in in 1993 that he died at the at the age of 49. His health had had first become a problem for him in July of 1979 when he was still a professional player. He was he was only 36 years old. He was still ranked number seven in the world at that time, and he out of nowhere he suffered. A heart attack. What was to be the 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 first of his heart attacks, um, and of course his his career then came to an ab abrupt end. He had to have bypass surgery <clears throat> later that year, um, and then had to have uh, another similar operation in 1983. Um, five years later, in September of 1988, he he lost um, he lost function, lost motor function in his right hand. Uh, and that led to him requiring brain surgery 
um, during the course of which they they discovered through blood testing that that he had ha- that he had AIDS, um, and they they assumed that he contracted the disease from one of his from a blood transfusion during one of his open heart operations. They suspect the second one. So that was in in 1988 that he uh, received that diagnosis. Um, and it wasn't until 1992 that the the world found out about it. He did make the decision to disclose his 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 condition publicly. Um, unfortunately, it was only after being told that USA Today intended to publish an article about his his illness and and could he confirm it. But after he made uh, that public admission in in it was on April the eighth in 1992. He spent the rest of his days campaigning for for public awareness, including making a speech on the floor of the United Nations on on World AIDS Day. Um, And he passed away just the following year at the age of 49. And um, I I made reference to it earlier, that that story um, of one of what would have been his final arrest um, from which I'm determined to take inspiration <laughs> for the rest of my my life. Um, it was towards the end of 1992, and Arthur took part in a, a protest march outside the White House uh, on the issue of of mistreat- mistreatment of Haitian refugees. It was a it was a, a growing um, topic of, of of debate and concern in 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 American discourse at the time he was arrested for taking part in that march and he was the lone representative of the sports world to do so to actually practice what they preached despite many others speaking out on on that issue and other social justice issues he was the only athlete there in that march despite the fact that by this time his he was in very ill health um he followed his conscience, even though it meant putting his health and his life at risk. Um, his doctors were worried that that he he physically wouldn't be able to cope with with marching that day. He had lost twenty percent of his body weight over the course of the the previous year, and as it happened, Arthur Ashe did suffer a mild heart attack after the day after his arrest, um, and he lived for for only another five months after that yeah um everything we've heard there from from mary and th- through all the 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 reading and description you've you've given us there catherine just just sums up his character to me both from uh, the humor that mary references and the giggler that she found him to be and the interview i heard from him this morning it always strikes me in every word he utters that he's he's a little bit ahead of where you are he's he's either concocting his own little slant of humor on what you've just said that that will amuse him and 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 or or he's he's got an understanding of of an issue and a take on it but he's not going to just throw it down your your throat he's going to he's going to just gently move you in the direction he wants things to go in he knows that they should go in and he and he takes it all it seems to me in his stride and even this awful luck bad luck that he had with ill health and he had heart disease that ran throughout his family 
Um, and and in the interview I heard this morning, he he, he said, I, I know that I'm probably not going to live a long life. In all honesty, he said. He said I actually went to a palm reader who says that my life, my I, I will live a long life, but I don't think I will. To be honest, I've had these heart attacks, and uh, given my family history, I probably won't. I hope I do, but I probably won't. Palm um, reader in being wrong, shocking news. And uh, this was in in 1984 that this interview took place, and at the time he didn't know that he'd already been infected with HIV. And uh, and and all the way through, it seems the the diagnosis and the the treatment, and or at least the the experience of of living with this disease, he he was he seemed to be accepting of it, and he would just he just dealt with whatever hand he had at any given time, and kept on moving forwards. And even as you say, there with with his health really failing him. He just carried on doing what he believed was the right thing to do. And he he famously said, you know, the the instinct when, when something bad befalls you is to say, why me? Um, and he would always say, well, why not me? And he's and uh, and sort of by the same token, he would say, well, if you're going to ask why me when something bad happens to you, surely when something good happens to you, you should also say, why me? Um, and I love the sort of, pithy logic to that yeah and it, and it goes back to what james blake was saying right at the start of the podcast that at his at his lowest ebb he embraced kind of new responsibilities and took on the battle because there wasn't there was so much fear and hysteria and misinformation about aids at that time and it was seen as it was seen as the gay curse and it was seen as something that you know, he had to reassure people that he wasn't going to infect them just because they were in the same room as him, and and he he took on that responsibility, and um, that that really is quite extraordinary. Um, there was this big there was this big debate at the time about you know whether the USTA publishing was kind of an invasion of privacy, masquerading as the public's right to know, or whether it was gossip pretending to be investigative journalism and but e- even that he kind of took ownership of that situation and and used used his platform there to do good as we've heard uh, establishing the Arthur Ashe Foundation for the defeat of AIDS um and it and it just strikes me that so many tennis players are not set up for what to do after tennis and Arthur Ashe absolutely was you know he he transcended the sport and he had so much to offer the world the world was a better place because Arthur Ashe was in it and it's so it's so cruel that his life was was cut so short and yet at the same time it was still such such a full life as well and I hope that he was aware that he had created a legacy that would would live on. I know he was a very humble man and probably wouldn't have spoken in those terms, but I I hope that he he was fully aware of the legacy that he'd created. I mean, I think we've all thought over the course of the last week wondered what he would think of of what we're seeing now in tennis with Naomi Osaka and, and Coco Goff and obviously Naomi Osaka is very much risen to the fore over the last 
few days on that front and we'll we'll talk about that in just a moment but but first I want to to hear from one of the one of the players who who did follow kind of more immediately in in his footsteps because he did act as a, a beacon for, for future generations of of back players just to to read a quote from from Zena Garrison on on Arthur Ashe and the way he paved the way for her she said he was He's always been someone for black players to look up to. Um, he's someone who said, you can do it. It doesn't matter where you come from or how you look. She said, Arthur showed what is possible to be accomplished. And I always wanted to follow in his footsteps. And nobody can forget that he made those footsteps. I really appreciate the time that he made his breakthrough. And it was harder then for a minority to break in, especially in our sport. But he did it to the hilt. Um so let's hear now from from Chandra Rubin, somebody else that was was able to to follow in in Arthur's footsteps and and what she thinks about Arthur's legacy. To me, his legacy is one of inclusiveness. His legacy is is one of fighting, but fighting with dignity and strength that did not demean the next person. You know, fighting and being unmovable about what he knew was right, about what he envisioned for the sport, which is what is one of the things that makes this sport so special today. You know, the fact that it includes everyone and and that the premise is that it includes everyone. Anyone who is able and, and wants to play, who you know, does the work to get to a certain level, you you can play and, and you're on equal ground, equal footing with the next person. And it's it's what he strove, you know, to make this sport actually look like and reflect that I think still reverberates today. It is still the the ideal of of this sport. And it's why he is such still such a powerful figure figure and will always be a powerful figure um, in this sport. He strove to do it when it wasn't popular, you know, when the fight was not knowing who you were fighting for in the future, but knowing that next kid, that next black kid, that next you know player was going to have an opportunity that maybe he didn't have. And, you know, that's incredibly that's incredibly special that that's incredibly empowering for these next generations. And so, you know, he is he is, you know, one of the most powerful figures in, in this sport. How important is it that that main stadium at the U.S. Open is named after him, that that inevitably because of that, his name is mentioned all the time and kept present and kept in the forefront of the minds of everyone that works in tennis and, and watches it? Well, I think it's, it's fitting. It, it, there's very little that's as fitting as that. Um, and, you know, we get, we can get to a point where we hear names, historical figures, and we understand a little bit about what they did, but maybe not so much. And, and it becomes the, the message becomes a, a little bit, um, you know, fades a little bit and you just get used to Ash Stadium, not really thinking about what that meant and what it continues to mean. Mm -hmm. And so I think every so often, you know, people have to be reminded of that, even though the stadium is named for him, people have to be reminded of why. Um, and, and 
not allowed to just let the message kind of fade because that's what we're still fighting for today. We're, we're still fighting to create equal opportunities across the board. And, and at the time he was fighting, it was more based on race. It was more based on, you know, black players being given opportunities to play. And what was, you know, at that point, a white only sport. Um, but now it, it has additional meaning in terms of equality across the board white, black, no matter, you know, your, your race, your color, but also no matter your gender. And I think tennis, it continues to be, have opportunities to be a leader in that, in that space. And so that's what that, the name of, of Ash Stadium, that's what that continues to signify. And and hopefully we don't ever lose sight of that. And and future generations can continue to understand the importance of it. um, Even as we get further away from, from his lifetime. And today, in the shadow of of both the Arthur Ashe Stadium and the the statue of Ashe at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre, today as we record, Naomi Osaka will will take to court in the Western and Southern Open for her semi-final match against Elise Mertens, a match that was supposed to be scheduled to take place yesterday, a match which Naomi Osaka originally withdrew from in protest um, at... Uh, well, a couple of uh, racially aggravated incidents that have taken place in America, the police shooting uh, in Wisconsin of a black man and the subsequent murder by a right-wing terrorist of two black protesters in Wisconsin, protesters of that police shooting. Um, And we first had the NBA and the WNBA um, going on strike um, in protest at, at those events and Naomi Osaka then followed suit, announced her withdrawal from that semi-final in protest. She she released an incredibly strong statement on her social media saying she didn't expect her her decision to, to change the world, but she thought it was the best thing she could do to try and try and start a conversation. Um and that is so, so echoing the 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 actions of Arthur Ashe isn't it I mean has his legacy ever certainly in our lifetimes felt more pertinent yeah I think he'd be immensely proud um the fact that she just she did that off her own back without any encouragement it seems just that's what she thought was the right thing to do she wanted to start that conversation in a white sport traditionally and and predominantly and and be able to to get people talking and within two hours the entire sport had paused because it decided to stand alongside Naomi and uh, and and not have any play yesterday um, and yeah that's meant that the conversation has been ongoing and I mean it's it's in the the scheme of things a small step but it is a significant one because it's never happened before to my knowledge. Barack Obama once said, talking about Arthur Ashe, that it doesn't really matter how you do it. What matters is your commitment to doing it. And as you said, Osaka didn't really know what the result of this action was going to be, but she was committed to doing it because she felt it was the right thing to do. And that right there is Arthur Ashe's legacy, but also it's full credit to Naomi Osaka because I think a a point worth making is that you know as you said the NBA the WNBA I think a few baseball teams as well those are 
you know, who kind of set the wheels in motion for this. Those are incredible, incredibly powerful gestures, but they're all team sports where people in, in the team can kind of give each other support and rally around one another. This was a, this was, this was an individual move by Osaka and she didn't know what the response was going to be, how it was going to be received. And it's been really, really encouraging that both the leaders in tennis stepped up and recognised the moment. And also, I think a lot of her fellow players as well, on certainly on social media, have, have given their support as well. And that, and that stuff matters as well. And that, that's how you turn it from a moment into a movement, I think. Start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. One of the 400,000 inspirational and profound quotes from Arthur Ashe yes. <laughs> that are on the internet. I'm just going to get that on a T-shirt as soon as we finish <laughs> doing this. Podcast. Just cut straight to having it tattooed on your forehead, Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and and look, it, it, it clearly is getting easier for athletes, easier than it was for Arthur Ashe. And, and we've, we've heard in this podcast about how it was easier easier for Arthur Ashe than it was for Althea Gibson. It is getting easier for athletes and people with a profile to use their platform to speak about political and social issues which which matter to them and to try and instigate change. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It's It was a very low, low starting point. It was, what, two years ago that Colin Kaepernick lost his job lost his job for taking the knee in the NFL and is still out of a job. That still remains the case. So yes, things are evolving and changing and the landscape might be shifting. But but as we're going to hear from one last time from Mary Carrillo and, and first Leslie Allen, there are still difficulties that athletes face when using their platform. Let's look at all athletes. And just by how our society is, we give them so much reference and it would be important for them to step up and use their platform. And I didn't see a lot of that. You know, you had a Colin Kaepernick and I used the phrase in one of my articles that, you know, people risk being Kaepernick if you speak mm-hmm. out. Um, but now people are like, you know what? We, we have a voice. Let's band together. You look at the NBA, the WNBA, uh, like you say, Coco and Osaka and um, the soccer team, just you have power together and you do have power. And and a lot of times the people that you are trying to speak out against, they don't want you to know you have the power or you're, they're veiled threats. You know, if you speak out, girl, you're not going to let, nobody else is going to be able to get in here to do that. Um, so I think... Arthur would be proud of those that have stepped up in a big way and used their voice. Um, But there's always risk involved, but it's nice to be in a position that the athletes are willing to take the risk because they have the power and they can, they can overcome the risk. You know, black lives matter is happening all around us in this country. That's on fire right now. Um, not terribly proud of the United States for any number of reasons lately, but uh, there's a there's a slogan. I don't know if if it's hit your shores, uh, and the slogan goes: "They tried to bury us, but didn't know we were seeds." Um, uh, I think Arthur would look upon these athletes, whether it's what what the late 
Kobe Bryant did or what LeBron James is willing to do, what Colin Kaepernick is willing to, have, is willing to do, uh, what these young tennis players of color are stepping up to do. I think he would be very happy to see that. And interestingly, Catherine, Billy has it in her head that athletes, and especially athletes of color these days now, um, like Muhammad Ali, obviously he was excoriated for speaking out for his beliefs, you know, whether, whether it be about his religion or Vietnam or whatever. Um, and a lot of athletes of color, obviously Colin Kaepernick, the football player, lost his job because he knelt during the national anthem, still is out of work in, in the football. Um, Billie Jean has it in her head that now, especially athletes of color will be rewarded for speaking out. It will become a part of their brand to speak out. They will use their platforms. They will sound out against you know, inequality or gender inequality, race, whatever it is. Billie Jean thinks now that the tide has really turned and that you don't have to be afraid to speak your mind any longer. You don't have to, you know, when Arthur Ashe played uh, tennis, when Althea Gibson played tennis, not only did they have to be very quiet and not argue calls and not, they couldn't even hit close to the lines um, for fear that they were going to get hooked by lines people, you know, that, that, <laughs> that they, you know, I mean, that's how bad it was. You had to be uh, so contained. And now Billie Jean feels that it swung the other way. And this is a time for you to understand your voice and use it and be rewarded for it. Which is in a massive shift, isn't it? Because depressingly, that has the, the economic disincentives to to be outspoken have been enormous over the years it's the it's the whole republicans buy sneakers too thing which you know is has been sad but true over the years so if 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 sponsors endorse and are in favor of their people speaking out and standing for things that's i mean it's maybe it's depressing that it takes that but that's a huge shift huge shift it's, would you say it's tectonic <laughs> the plates have shifted that much um and and you we've already seen there are companies like gatorade like nike at least in in my country where that is the brand you know you want to be a rebel you want to be you know you want to stand out in those ways you want to use your voice um yes i think that is a huge shift and it will um i think it would will really change Everything. I mean, when, when people say, when the people get aggravated that athletes speak their mind about politics, um, you know, a lot of people say, keep politics out of sports. You know, yeah, well, good luck with that. Good luck, good luck trying to put that toothpaste back in the, in the tube. It's just not, it's not going to happen, is it? I've used the expression, good luck putting that toothpaste back in the tube twice over the last four days. <laughs> I think one of them was directed at me. <laughs> Such a great expression. Um, she's right, though, isn't she? It, it clearly is changing. I, I know it would have pained Mary to use the word brand. Um, and it is kind of a sorry reflection of things that that athletes are so brand driven and that that economics 
um, that sort of brutal capitalist economics should be such a factor in things that feel as if they should be separate to that. But if it does become economically viable for sponsors to, to encourage this kind of thing, then great. It's kind of an ends justify the means kind of, kind of thing, isn't it? I, I think it's a big, big movement in the right direction. I, I remember a couple of years ago talking to somebody who looked after Andy Murray's business affairs and, and when he was occasionally t speaking out on subjects of, of importance, whether on behalf of women tennis players or or things that he just didn't think were right. And, uh, and yeah, uh, some, some of the corporate brands were scurrying i remember even he even spoke out against head who were who, who were his own racket supplier because they were supporting maria sharapova at the time of her, her um positive doping test and and the the agent said well the way we view it is there's an authenticity to him and that is in itself uh attractive it, it should be and this is obviously a huge step on from that of, of way more importance, uh, both for um, athletes of colour and and female athletes, and particularly female athletes of color, of colour, and and absolutely right, absolutely right. It's about time that the world caught up that when somebody takes a stand for the right reasons and does something truly good that they are not punished because it might upset a few people. Mm. It still takes the individual agency to do it, though, doesn't it? Because Osaka was saying in her pre-tournament press conference that people have told her that she's not supposed to talk about politics. In the, in the same week that she then withdrew to protest against racial injustice. So it still takes that individual agency and... Therefore, I think we, you know, which is why Osaka is worthy of so much praise for this. And yeah, I mean, that that line about keeping sport out of politics riles me every every single time I would hear someone say that because, yes, sport is entertainment. But if you if you ask athletes to ignore politics, you're ignoring their humanity. And of course, athletes are going to be affected by political and social issues and if if we're moving in a direction where they're now they're now going to be rewarded as Billie Jean King says for speaking out against that that I, that I think is is an incredibly positive sign yeah sport is in politics folks pretending that isn't the case I don't think does does anyone any favors um so that is Arthur Ashe, his life, his legacy, um, his enduring impact on the sport today. Um, and yeah, I'll be, it, uh, <laughs> it feels, it feels sort of really sad that we're not recording this underneath his statue at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre, doesn't it? You know, with, with his stadium looming over us, but, um, we certainly will be back there one day and I'm pleased that when we are back there, I will have, if I am 
watching a match like Kyle Edmund against Denis Shapovalov circa 2017, I will be able to turn my attention to thoughts of Arthur Ashe and, and have lots of them to get me through whatever boring tennis match I'm subjecting myself to. Yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that the next time I'm there, I will walk around with a different set of eyes and ears and just thinking about the the stories and the the version of events that we've heard from all of our all of our contributors over the last few days both for Althea Gibson and for Arthur Ashe I, I really I feel like this has been a massive moment in my, in my life really just learning about these two people and, and and actually hearing Arthur Ashe speak and reading the things he said and just his, his outlook on life his approach to things if you can't learn from that something wrong with you um, because that should be something to aspire to start where you are use what you have do what you can and get arrested as much as possible um, I'd like to thank uh, Mary Carrillo for those words of wisdom and many others um, and all of our contributors to this podcast to the Althea Gibson podcast James Blake Leslie Allen Steve Flink Richard Evans, uh, John McEnroe. Uh, he doesn't know he's contributed to this podcast, <laughs> but you did, John, and thanks very much for it. Um, and uh, Chanda Rubin as well. Um, you've made this podcast, your contributions, your recollections have have been the absolute essence of it, this one, and, uh, and the one about Althea Gibson. Um, and... Uh, Thank you ever so much to all of you for for giving your time and energy to to what's been what's been a, a very emotional journey for us all, and um, yeah, that's some very important tennis relived, isn't it? And now now we have to turn our attention back to the the present. Yeah, are we going to remember how to live tennis after this? <laughs> We've got to do it on a daily basis, so we better start. Yes, plenty of opportunities to remind ourselves. Uh, daily, well, first of all, we have, what do we have? We have a Cincinnati rap podcast and a US Open draw review. That will be coming to you on Sunday, would have been Saturday, but because of the halting of play and Naomi Osaka's brave and bold actions, it will now be Sunday. Um, and then from Monday, we will have daily US Open podcasts for you, 14 days of the US Open, Matt and his caravan, David in Salford, me in a car between Putney and Hounslow. It's all glamour, folks, and we can't wait. We'll speak to you soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 